0: Please turn with me now to the book of First John. First John. The first epistle of John. The topic we're going to be looking at here this morning is from these first four verses of John's first epistle. And in many ways, it's a very challenging topic. It's a very sensitive topic. And from reading this, you may not get that sense. The topic we're talking about here is the topic of Christian assurance. Christian assurance. What does that mean? It is this, the struggle with the question, how do I know that I'm saved? Yes, I know I'm saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. I know that salvation is found in Him and in Him alone. But how do I know that I have saving faith? You may be here this morning and say, well, why do people struggle with these things? Not all of us struggle with these things. Some do, some don't. Sometimes it's due to sin at times. Sometimes we can doubt the promises of God and we think, hmm, too good to be true. Too good to be true. It just sounds too good. We can become cynical. But while many struggle, true believers struggle in this area, many don't. And there's many who ought to to look at this issue. How do you know you truly belong to Christ? I just want to, before we read God's holy word, I just want to speak to the boys and to the girls before we read God's holy word. Boys and girls, do you have a special toy? Do you have a special toy? A toy that is so special... You have to bring it to bed with you. And if you don't have that special toy, you can't sleep without it. Has anybody got that special toy? I think even the the older people here remember their special toys. You look back at old pictures and you'll see every picture you have that special toy and you're clinging to it and you love that toy. Now, boys and girls, have you ever lost that toy? You go, where did it go? Is it behind the couch? Uh, And and you're worried about it. What if I can't find that bunny anymore? Or that little toy mouse? What happens? Is it at my friend's house? Do they leave it there? Where is it gone? Now, is it truly gone? No, it's probably somewhere in the house. But you're worried about it, aren't you? (gasps) Where did it go? Oh no, you can't find that toy make you feel sad. It probably will make you feel sad if you lost that toy. But how about, have you ever found that toy again? Months later, my girls, they lost a little toy, Brown Mouse. And they were so happy to see it later. I think it was about a year or two later that they actually found it. And what happens when you find that toy, your favorite toy? You can go back to playing. You can go back to having fun. And it's joyful, isn't it? You have your toy back. That's wonderful. Dear Christian, I want you to think about this. If you do not know if you have saving faith, you will struggle with joy in your heart. You will struggle. You have to know that you know him. If you are in a point where I'm not sure if I'm a Christian... You will struggle, you will be tormented throughout your Christian life. It's something that burdened me early in my Christian walk because I kept coming across people with these struggles. Do I have salvation? Is this something I have? But dear friends, if you find it, if you know that you know you belong to God, it is joyful and it is wonderful. And this is what we're... Lord willing, we'll see here this morning as we read 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses of this epistle. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. This letter written by John the Apostle is very much filled with this one theme. Christian Assurance. Christian assurance. How do you know that you're a Christian? It's filled with many things to assure the true believer that you are indeed a true believer in Jesus Christ. It is filled with tests, but it's also filled with warnings as well throughout this book. And Lord willing, we will see this as well. But it is filled with things that will strengthen the faith of the true believer. It is a book which very much focuses on what it says in verse 4 here. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. There's a sense in which these first four verses summarize or introduce the entire letter John is writing here. It warns against hypocrisy and false assurance. But it's that joy, that joy John wants his readers to experience that their joy may be full. The joy of Christian assurance that the believer would find it, but that the hypocrite would not find it. It's very important. Because it's important, if you are not a believer, that you know this that you do not get false assurance when I was growing up as a Roman Catholic I always just thought well as long as I go to the building I'll be okay and that type of thinking can happen in Protestant circles as well we may have the true gospel preached to us but we can think just because we come to a building that that is all do we have faith in Jesus Christ do we seek him do we seek him? So, as we're looking at this topic here this, or this morning of this joy of Christian assurance, we're going to look at it under four headings. And the first heading is this it's proof. It's proof. Verse 1 that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Often, faith, especially in the world, can be understood this way as some kind of a blind leap in the dark. Dear friends, that is not biblical. It is not reasonable. It makes no sense. If you are to trust someone or something, you have confidence in that thing you are placing your hope in. We can often think as well as believers, regardless of what we believe, it doesn't really matter. Now, we're always going to get doctrines wrong. We, we, we will. We just don't realize which ones we get wrong. But it does matter what we believe. It does matter that we trust this word, the word of God, completely and utterly. If you do not believe a friend of yours, what will happen in a time of trouble? Will you ring that friend up on the phone and ask them for help? You might be slow to ring them if you don't trust them. If you don't have confidence in someone or something... Will you go to them in times of trouble? When a politician promises more jobs in the next election, are you thinking, aha, I mean, more jobs if that person gets in? Or do you think, hmm, it might happen? Probably won't, but okay. We, do we have confidence in the source? Do we have confidence in our God? And what evidence we look to, what proof we have, will impact our assurance of salvation. This all ties into our assurance in salvation. If we have doubts in Christ, or doubts in the Word, and we're not really sure if it's true, we're going to struggle in this area. It has to. It has to. John introduces this letter with Jesus, the Word of life, the Word of of life the Christ the second person of the trinity the son of the living god predates all he predates all this is why it says that which was from the beginning which we have heard we have heard this word of life which we have seen with our eyes we have seen with our eyes the son of god is eternal, without beginning and without end. He is truth. He is the truth, the way, and the life. Not only that, He's the creator of heaven and earth, the word of life. He's the one who gives life. We don't just take the word of hearsay, do we, as Christians? It is based upon this rock. It is based upon this foundation of trust on what is absolutely true. And John comes, as he writes to them, he comes to assure them of this truth of all this. All of what they have trusted in. He says that they, he says we here, the apostles have heard him, the apostles. These sent ones have heard Jesus Christ. They have seen him with their eyes. And this is very important. This is not some dream that John had. If you see other religions in the world, there might be some strange vision or something like that. No, no. In no wise. This is, we have seen him with our own eyes. This is no fantasy. This is no invention of men. John heard and saw this man. The word Became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. He has seen him with his very own eyes, and not just him, all the apostles and others as well. In history, if you're going to study history, eyewitnesses are very, very important. Someone who is there, someone who actually saw what took place. In court cases, an eyewitness is so valuable. To a case. Well, here are eyewitnesses, the apostles and others who saw him. They came with evidence that assured or persuaded. If we're talking about the court, we're talking about the jury, or the judge persuading them of the truth of something. We need to be persuaded that this is the truth, that Jesus is truly the truth, the way, and the life, that he is truly. God that he is truly Emmanuel because if we don't if we waver in these things if we lack confidence in these things it will affect our assurance it will affect our assurance think of these eyewitnesses did they, did they disagree with each other you look at all these eyewitnesses in the Bible they all focused on different details they, look at, they looked at, it at a different angle If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't all record the same details. They all look at it from different angles, but they all say the same thing in different ways. That Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose again from the grave. They were so sure this is what John says, our hands have handled. It's so sure, dear friends, John is saying, I have touched with my own hands. Can you think of someone in the Bible, dear friends, who said, "Ah, I'm not going to believe any of that unless I can touch him myself. Can you remember Thomas? John 20, verses 24 to 29. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is Thomas speaking. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And then a little later, Jesus said to to him, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Are you doubting like Thomas? You want more evidence? Dear friends, we are surrounded with evidence. The Christian faith does not lack evidence. The Christian faith often lacks, on our part, study, investigation, Crying out to the Lord. That's what it often lacks. It's not a jump into the dark. You could even say it's this. It's dive into, prayerfully, study of the word of God. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Number two now. Number two. So we've looked at its proof. We're now going to look at its perspective. Its perspective. The joy of assurance does not just come down to evidence or how sure these things are. And we can look into so many things and see not just how these things are probably true. They're undeniably true. But more than that, there's a heavenly perspective being spoken about here by John. Again, verse 1, it says in the middle of this, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Which we have looked upon. Now, is John repeating himself here a little bit, for just for style reasons? Is he saying, one minute, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. This is just John saying the same thing twice in another way? Well, there's two different Greek words being used here. And they can be very similar to each other. They can just mean to simply just look and to see. But the second word often has a sense of something extra. Not just looking, but gazing. Not just looking for a second and registering it as evidence, but being in awe. Have you ever seen a work of art? painting or something where you're, you're looking at it, you're impressed you're going, wow actually you get other people to have a look at it too, you're so impressed that's almost the sense of it here the idea of looking at something in a prolonged way to gaze upon him, the apostles, along with John himself we have looked upon looking at something they were impressed with it. It's not just evidence. We, we can have all the evidence we want. We can be the smartest person in the room. There are people who know so much about the Christian faith. Intellectually. But it doesn't impact their lives. There are people who could, by, by memory, give you the Westminster Larger Catechism and other things, but it does not mean they're a godly person. It means they're very Intelligent. It's not just with our physical eyes. But we look to him and we marvel at him. Now we can often think today, if Jesus walked among us today in the middle of Rathfrae Island, or anywhere in Northern Ireland, that our neighbors, our lost friends and neighbors, would marvel at him too. Now there's a sense in which they might marvel at him, but unless they're hearts have been changed they will not want to come to church they will not want to come and worship god it says in isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3 for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, before we go on, Jesus was and is the greatest preacher to ever walk upon the face of the earth. The greatest teacher to ever explain and teach about the kingdom of God. Perfect men. But this is not what we saw. If he was ever to come amongst us, unless and until people's hearts are changed, they will not view him in a different way. Because unless people have a new heart, dear friends, they hate this King of glory. We, by grace gaze upon him, in awe of him. We can come and worship and not think it's a ridiculous thing, because he is so wonderful. But sadly, friends, those people who do not look to Christ alone for their Savior, they hate him. People who are saved have a heavenly perspective. They look to him and they love him. Now, perhaps, when you're thinking about this, you might think, oh, am I actually saved? I, I, I don't gaze as much as I ought to upon Christ. But, dear friends, none of us do. None of us gaze upon Christ as much as we ought to. He is so wonderful and lovely. Perhaps the doubts are creeping in. Perhaps because... You've neglected private worship or neglected public worship or neglected family worship. All, all worship is important in the home and here. All of it is important. And when you lose this perspective, this heavenly perspective on this heavenly man, you will struggle with assurance. Doubts and torments will creep in for the true believer. And I say for the true believer. Because the true believer will be chastened by Christ himself. If you drift from God, he will make your life challenging. You will not be pleased. He's correcting you. And correction, if you remember when you were a child and your father corrected you for maybe showing lack of respect... It was not pleasant, but you learned. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 8, and you have forgotten exhortation, which speaks to you as to sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If you're feeling chastened, that's a sign that you are born. Again, if you are drifting from him. But I say to you, come back. Come back to that place of peace. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. There is a scary reality for the person who is drifting from the Lord, drifting from attendance to church, drifting from all the things, the outward means of grace, and is no wise grieved by this. This is the most dangerous condition. I have known people who've gone to church for years, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere it seems, they're no longer a believer. Dear friends, if that is you, come back to a heavenly perspective. Gaze upon Christ. I'm not saying live a better life. That will not save you. You look to a better Savior. You cannot save yourself. As, in, as you look upon him, the joy of the Lord, as we read earlier in Nehemiah, will be your strength. Now, you cannot lose your salvation. If you are saved, the Lord will never let you go. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can lose your assurance when you fall into serious sin. So we've looked at its proof, its perspective. Now, number three, we're going to look at its preaching. It's preaching. Verse two, the life is manifested or revealed, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us and declare to you. Notice how it says we. We have declared to you. There is life being revealed and these sent ones by God. Remember the apostles were not people who appointed themselves. They didn't just say, hey, I want to preach one day. No, no, they were sent by Christ with his authority of what they witnessed and what was revealed. The word translated here, declared, has the idea of announce publicly. In verse 3 it says this, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Again, the same Greek word translated, declare to you. And what they're doing, these apostles, and we forget sometimes that they were preachers, sent to preach and declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. They were to preach what they saw. They were to bring a message with no alteration to that message. Only what they saw, only what they heard. To declare him, this declaration to the people of God, what will they do? Now, there's a great deal of struggling with assurance today. Many people don't like to talk about it. It's not the, it's not the most fun thing to bring up to people. But many people struggle in this area. And are tormented for years in this area. There can be many different reasons for this. There's no one silver bullet solution if you're struggling here this morning with assurance. We're all different. Some of our consciences are very sensitive. Some of us are not built that way. We're all different. We're all, we've all got different um, constitutions and different things like that. But I believe one of the reasons for our lack of assurance in the West today is this. Our lack of confidence in the preached word. John here is talking about the apostles. The life is manifested and showed. We have seen and we bear witness and we declare it to you. If you go back in terms of Christian history, when assurance was a lot. Probably a lot stronger, never perfect, but a lot stronger than it is today. Preaching was far more central than it is in the church today. Preaching builds us up. Preaching, godly preaching, reminds us of who we belong to. And not just, yes, we belong to God, but we also belong to one another. Not an amazing thing. Look at what he says here in our text. Verse 3 That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. The apostles are not just going, Look, we're up here, you're down here, we're too good for you. No, no, no. You can have fellowship with us. You can have, we can share things together, or put it another way, we're family. We're family. We are the closest. The people around us here are the people we ought to be the closest to in all the earth. Yes, we love our physical family. Yes, we love them as well. But this is the closest relationship we ought to ever have is with Christian brothers and sisters. And dear friends, there is a being who seeks to devour, who does not want you to be close to other Christians and the church. And that is the devil. And it's another reason we can struggle with assurance. We can lose our connection with one another. If we are isolated and, and a predator, you know, like a, a wolf, a lion loves when one sheep has gone astray and is by themselves. We're we're one family. We've got to support each other. We've got to encourage each other. Equip each other. Realize that we belong to each other. And dear friends, that will strengthen the sense in which we all belong to one family. We all belong to one Savior. And that will help us in what area? That we belong to him. That closeness. That bond. We share one one with another. And this is the purpose of this declaration. The purpose of this declaration is this, that we would see our fellowship, one with another, that have that fellowship, and truly it says our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, our fellowship is with God, but it's also with one another. Do we love God, whom we don't see, with our physical eyes? Well, the question is, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we do see, on a day-to-day basis? Our final point is its purpose. What's the purpose of all this? Why, Why is John writing this? So we've looked at its proof, its perspective, its preaching, and finally, number four, its purpose. Its purpose. There can be the sense... That to be a good Christian depends on how serious you are. And that can be true in some areas. But let us not have a, a Christianity without joy. There's a real danger, isn't there? That we forget joy. Joy. Why does John write these things? He says, and these things, verse 4, we write to you that your joy may be full. And Dear friends, I want your joy to be full. Not with the joy of the world, but the joy that comes from the Lord himself. That you delight so much in him you're content. Now, not to be joyful in a, in a foolish worldly way. That, that joy is short-lived. The things of this world are all vanity. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he lives at the pinnacle of earthly riches. He has seen it all. And at the end of his life, he says this. Vanity of vanities. It's all just a puff of smoke. This life is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. Eternal things. Eternal things. That cannot be taken from us. The joy that comes from the enjoyment of God. The enjoyment of God something we're going to be looking at this evening, actually. Um, Why we are here. That's the the message for this evening. And the, the first question of the Westminster Larger Catechism says this. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Sometimes we can forget that second part. Enjoy him forever. There is a joy John is aiming towards. There's a joy he wants his readers to have. Dear friends, there's a joy that I want you all to have. Whatever struggles you may be having in your life, dear friends, this area is so important. Remember, boys and girls, we were talking about that last toy. Remember your favorite toy? If you can't find your favorite toy, you can't go to sleep. You can't concentrate on your schoolwork. Where's my toy? Show it to me. I can't focus. Well, dear friends, you won't be able to focus on your Christian walk very much if you're constantly looking over your shoulder wondering, are you a Christian at all? It will rob you of joy. And one of the reasons we may be not joyful is we forget the reasons why we ought to be joyful. It says in Philippians 4 verse 8, finally brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are notable, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. Now, when we're looking at the media, when we're looking at all the things that fill the newspapers and get all the eyeballs and the attention, we do the exact opposite. I'm not saying we ignore problems in society. We pray about these things. We should be aware of things. But not to the point where they dominate our Thinking. It's easy for us to gravitate toward the negative things. That's just the way we are. But the challenge is to meditate on these things. These things which are praiseworthy. These things which will, our joy may be full. These things which will say in our soul, in our heart, Oh Lord, I belong to you. And when you do that, when that happens in your heart, when you do face... The challenges of the world, what will happen? Will you be able to face them better? Absolutely. Absolutely. The greater the assurance we have, the greater the confidence we're going to have in the God. If God be for us, who can be Against us. Remind ourselves of Nehemiah 8, verse 10, which we read earlier. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Now he just told them devastating news. They had really fallen short. But then he says this to them This is Ezra. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow. easy to point out the things that we're all not doing. All of us fall short. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We need to be consecrated and set apart to the Lord or we will be, we will lose that strength. John's purpose here is to make your joy full, that you have your doubts removed. See how he starts off with that proof, that which was from the beginning. But how will that happen? How will you be reassured in your soul that this is true? Serious time alone with God. I'm not saying I know in a few weeks' time, there'll be lots of reading plans, and I encourage you to get one. And if you read through the Bible once a year, that I praise God for that. Wonderful. But I want people to think about it differently than that. Spend serious time alone with God. I don't even want to set a time limit. I don't even want to set them out at chapters or anything else like that. It may just be one chapter where you spend an hour with God, pouring over every verse, praying over everything. But whatever you do, set that time aside. Nobody can call you. Nobody can interrupt you. And that will reassure your heart. I heard a story a few months ago. Someone was struggling with assurance in Joel Beakey's church. And he couldn't get back in time to the office to be able to deal with this person. And he told them, Just say, look, read your Bible for 10 minutes a day, pray for 10 minutes, and then meditate on what you've read for another 10 minutes. By the time he came back, he said, it's okay. I don't need to see you anymore. He spent time alone with the Lord. And the anxiety and the torments that were tormenting him not completely gone, I assure you. But far greater. Far greater. Come, dear friends, that you may be blessed by the sun and the preaching. I'd encourage you to come this evening. Come, that you may know greater joy. There's greater joy here. Greater joy. Lasting joy. Joy. From being with God himself. Amen.